Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, Dr. Smith will be speaking with Dr. Spencer Payne on his article, Preoperative Management of Spontaneous Cerebrospinal Fluid Rhinorrhea with Acetazolamide. This edition of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Aranex, makers of the Clarifix cryotherapy device. A breakthrough solution for chronic rhinitis patients, Clarifix offers ENT physicians an advanced, minimally invasive approach to effectively treat patients suffering from chronic rhinitis. Visit us at www.clarifix.com. That's www.clarifix.com. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Smith, and today I'm very happy to be joined by Spencer Payne from Charlottesville, Virginia. We will be discussing his article, which is currently available online and is entitled Preoperative Management of Spontaneous Cerebrospinal Fluid Rhinorrhea with Acetazolamide. Uh, Spencer, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Tim. It's uh, uh, great to be here and uh, glad to uh, participate. Well, thank you. Um, so I'm intrigued by your study on several levels. I mean, I I never would have thought to treat patients with spontaneous cerebrospinal fluid leaks primarily with medical management as I had always thought that medical management is should be adjunctive therapy in these cases rather than primary therapy, I guess. I just never even uh, considered the option. I've always thought that, I've always thought that the most important aspect of their treatment is to surgically close the fistula and reduce the risk of meningitis. And therefore, the treatment that you've studied and are, and are potentially suggesting here uh, is pr- going to be pretty controversial, I think, and definitely worth worthy of uh, some further discussion here. So I'm really happy to have you on uh, to do this. So to be honest with you, you're going to have to do some convincing with me to get on board with this, Spencer. So have at it. You have my full attention. And I want to hear how your thought processes. And first of all, why? how did you come up with this idea? How did you even think about trying medical management in advance of surgery in the first place? Yeah, and and I'll and I'll and I'll I'll admit that probably the first time I did this, it was more at the uh, the request of the patient. But you know, like you said, you know, I, I was never trained this way. This is what I was taught. This wasn't uh, you know what I would have been uh, in, told was the best idea for a patient. And and you're right. I've I've talked to several people about this since I started looking at my series, and I was even surprised by the glaring looks I had got from people. But you know, in truth, the issue is. You know, there's been a lot of evidence about spontaneous cerebral spinal fluid leaks being attributed to elevated intracranial pressure. And the demographics of these patients often aligns with those with idiopathic intracranial hypertension, you know, with, uh, with obesity and elevated pressure and, and, um, uh, and oftentimes a female gender in their 40s and, and that type of thing. And so a, a lot of us talk about using adjunctive measures after surgery to lower intracranial pressure, and whether that's you know lumbar drains at the time of surgery, um, or diamox afterwards, or cetazolamide, which has been used to try to reduce pressure in order to uh, prevent uh, you know immediate failure or recurrence. And so, you know, I had this patient had been sent in to me, and they had been dripping for for months and um you know we ran through the the ladder of of options from 
you know, endoscopic repair to craniotomies and, and all of these, you know, other things. And they said, well, why, you know, why can't you just give me a pill? And I thought, well, you know, could I just give you a pill? And we had a long conversation about it, and we talked about the risks of meningitis and, and those types of things. And, uh, you know, in the end, uh, the, the patient opted to try this uh, acetazolamide um, in, a, in a lower formulation than what I usually see will cause uh, side effects. And uh, sure enough, it worked. Uh, and, and within a couple of weeks, she, she called me back and said, you know, I'm not dripping anymore. And, uh, and I said, well, that's, uh, you know, that's now I can't say that this was necessarily a bad idea. And um, and then there was a, and I hadn't really thought much more about it. You know, that was kind of my, my end of one. And, you know, it wasn't a, for a while, and probably a couple of patients had passed after that where, I had another patient who had kind of a, a similar question, um, and uh, there was just going to be issues with scheduling them for the operating room in a timely fashion. I said, well, at least in the meantime, let's get you on a, a good regimen of stool softeners and reduced activity, and there's this other you know, pill that reduces CSF uh, pressure, so why don't we have you on this while, you know, while we're waiting to get you on board and, and we finish your medical workup. And sure enough, that person got better as well. And so then I just started offering it to patients, uh, kind of as a, as a dual parallel thing, which is based on the structure of my operative schedule. Uh, you know, I would, you know, usually there was probably about a four to six week delay between when I would see these patients and when I'd be able to operate. And so I would just initiate them on the therapy that I had planned to put them on post-op. And, you know, a certain number of them would fall off and report that they had gotten better before we actually got to the surgical date. Um, okay. And, and your, so, your, I'm sorry, your, your definition of getting better or the outcome is that their nose stops stripping CSF. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Their nose stops stripping. Okay. So, you know, the, which is good because that really does bother these patients. Some of them can leak so much they wet their pillowcase at night, every night, and they'll describe these types of, you know, quality of life type things. I guess my my concern, however, remains that there is an epithelial, theoretically, there is an epithelialized fistula between the intracranial cavity and the sinus cavity. And by reducing the intracranial pressure, perhaps the leak, perhaps there's not fluid coming through that fistula any longer, but that fistula has not healed over or closed itself, or if it has, I'm not sure I understand the mechanism of how it could do that, in which case the patient is still at risk for meningitis over the longer term. So that's what, that's where I have trouble understanding uh, where you know, we would, where the primary outcome here for me would be closure of the fistula so that we reduce their risk of meningitis rather than reducing the liquid flowing from their nostrils. Right. And, you know, and, and referring to it as an epithelialized fistula may be yeah. it's somewhat misleading because I don't, I don't think the tract is epithelialized, but I think there's a there's a defect in the the nasal epithelium, the mucosa, where you know the meningocele has usually pushed through and, and and that type of thing. So I guess you know I'm making some assumptions, which is that the leak is stopping, the drip has stopped because that epithelium has reconstituted, the dura is reconstituted, the epithelium is reconstituted, and the fistula 
has it in of itself um, uh, rep- repaired itself. Okay. Um, and uh, and not for every patient did we perform an endoscopy because a lot of times these are in the crib before when you can't get there unless they're completely asleep anyways. But in, in, in one or two of the instances where we were able to inspect it, you know, there was, you know, it, it, the area had re-epithelialized. So, you know, in the end, you know, we do our repairs, and, and I traditionally don't do multi-layer repairs, and we may just do a mucosal graft, and I'm just reconstituting the mucosa. Um, so to me, you know, it, it's, it's allowed the body to, to repair itself. But you're right. The, you know, is there a theoretical leak of, uh, uh, concern for a CSF leak? You know, sure. Um, and, and we may see that in the long term, even with our post-traumatic patients who have resolved spontaneously, um, and then 20 years later, they develop meningitis, but they've had a mucosalized leak. So the, and the literature has been a little bit mixed on, um, you know, what the exact rate of meningitis is, and it gets a little dirty when you look at whether they're post-traumatic or spontaneous, and there's no yeah. great series that looks at only spontaneous for what their true risk is. I agree with the the difficulties in looking at the literature when it confuses or or conflates or mixes up those two groups of patients because I think those two groups of patients are just as fundamentally different as they could be. The patient with the traumatic leak has a an acute um, injury to that those epithelial or these layers of tissue there's acute injury there and that wants to heal and so the body does incredible things to heal those leaks probably the vast majority of those traumatic leaks that occur the body can find a way to heal those because there's an injury there that needs to heal itself and again the body's great at that what's different in this case is that these are typically, you know, chronic, long-term leaks where there is no acute uh, injury. Interestingly, I've seen a few of these do what I think is close themselves because the patient got meningitis and it generated enough inflammation in and around the leak that the body was then able to, uh, you know, repair the the whole by healing the whole uh because of this injury the meningitis the inflammation of the meninges that occurred um but i don't see any way for the body to heal itself in the, the situation where there isn't uh some type of stress on on that particular area what do you think about that well, I mean, I think I think to a sense what you're saying is is correct, and that we're balancing forces, uh, forces of destruction and construction. And you know, I've done I've seen the same thing where the you know we're and we almost you know in working with neurosurgeons, we have patients who come in with these acute infections, and we say, well, let's let them calm down because it may actually just heal itself with all the added stress of the inflammation. Yeah. But I think with, even with these long term. Um, you know, fistula, these long-term wounds, it's it, what the issue is, is that there's been a chronic force. And, and our assumption um, with this disease process is that that chronic force is the elevated pressure. And if we could reduce that force and the natural tendency of the body to restore itself will, can occur. Um, and so, you know, that's what we're, we're attempting to do, which is reduce that 
force, that elevated pressure, so that it doesn't overcome the, you know, the tensile strength of the epithelium or the dura to repair itself. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a very, it is a very interesting way to think about it. I, I, I struggle with it, but I, because I guess my concern is that there are these patients walking around who maybe are no longer leaking. The fluid was our indication that there actually was a fistula there, and now we've taken that indication away, but that the fistula persists and that the patient's risk of meningitis uh, persists. And I don't I mean, you and I, I think, would agree on this, that your study in terms of the follow-up is not long enough to pick up on the risk of long-term meningitis in someone who might still have a fistula. Is that that fair to say? Well, it depends on what long-term is. You know, I mean, Uh I think our average follow-up for the patients who did not get to surgery was 470 days. you know, so over a year. So we didn't. We certainly didn't. You know, cast them to the wilderness and 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 uh, cross our fingers and 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 kind of leave it as an as needed. You know, I, I was just as um, uh, concerned about these issues as you know I think you and and our readers and listeners are going to be. Um, so you know, what is their you know two, three, five, ten year risk? I'm not sure, but at least in this series we had no episodes of that, with our average follow up being. You know, 470, yeah. A year and a half, a year and a third, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that, I do think that there are a lot of people who walk around with spontaneous CSF leaks for years and they just don't get meningitis. Right, yeah. I, I guess the issue is that once they, when they do get meningitis, it's a life threatening illness and thankfully we've gotten a lot better, you know, at, at treating it over the years and I think hopefully fewer and fewer patients are suffering severe morbidity or mortality from meningitis, but it definitely still occurs. And so when you balance the risk of a life-threatening infection uh, with this, it just, to me, it complicates the situation that much more. So if you, so when you talk to the patient, you tell them, hey, look, um, the Standard accepted way of doing this is to a surgical procedure to to fix the the leak, right? And if um, if we don't fix this leak, then there is some risk of meningitis occurring over some period of time, and that's really difficult to quantify. I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, I, mean I think that all goes into the consenting process, which is. You have a leak. As long as you have this leak, you have a risk of meningitis. That risk is not necessarily a, a, a certain number. We can fix it surgically. You know, there is a risk of meningitis from the surgery itself. There is a risk of meningitis during the healing period. Um, and there's a risk of meningitis and, and future leaks if we don't address the underlying pressure issues as well. And so then we tie in the... You know, the other option is the medical therapy, which, you know, works in some people. Uh, it's not great for everyone. And, but then there's a continued risk of meningitis with that, which is not a number we can necessarily, uh, there's not a number we can necessarily put on that. Um, and so it, it, it really does require, you know, a real open and honest conversation with the patient. And, and that's what we've been having. Yeah. Now, uh, Cetazolamide, I assume that this is something, a medicine that they would then be on for the rest of their lives. 
Yes, and and what I and what I talked to them about um, is that it's it's kind of part of their management system. As uh, while we hope that we address other patient-related factors, um, you know, we know that weight and blood pressure contribute to this. Um, there's some evidence that obstructive sleep apnea plays a role in elevating intracranial pressure, especially at night or during the apneic episodes. Um, and so part of their, you know, my comprehensive of workup for these patients is getting sleep studies and, and getting them with, in with their, you know, their PCPs and nutritionists and working towards weight loss. And, and, and we talk like that you know, this is a, this is a, this is a treatment that is a, to hold you over until we can address some of these other patient factors. And when we, we look at the article and there's, you know, there's one table that talks about getting MRVs and, and, and some other findings. Uh, related to um, uh, leaks, including um, sinus stenosis or, or transverse sinus stenosis. You know, we're evaluating these processes. Um, you know, if there's a, a dural venous sinus stenosis that's that's increasing the pressure, if they have sleep apnea, and then we try to address all of these other things and then give them the option to potentially come off of these medications. Um, you know, a lot of these patients have some underlying symptoms of, of elevated intracranial pressure, too. And, you know, the patients with pseudotumor cerebri and, you know, other diagnoses of this, this is a medication they stay on lifelong. Um, and it's, uh, it's amazing, actually, that I think we don't see more of our patients develop some of these more significant pseudotumor-like symptoms after we repair their leak um, and close off the fistula. Yeah, it's interesting. My My own experience with spontaneous cerebrospinal fluid leaks is that I I have repaired the leak surgically. It's usually in a multi-layered fashion in these cases only because I think of the the pressures, the forces being placed on these particular repairs as being higher than the forces placed on other repairs where I might just use a single-layer mucosal graft coverage, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I I do not use lumbar drains uh, in in this patient population. Um, I've really abandoned lumbar drains across the board for for the vast majority of CSF leak repair. So it'd be unusual for me to use one of those now. I used to use them. I think we all used to use them very very regularly with C, all, almost all CSF leak repairs. But we've all also kind of moved uh, away from that. What I've found in my own population and just own experience over years is that that repair um, generally does the trick, um, you know, as the literature would suggest, on the order of 90% of the time in the short run. And in the longer term, at least that I am aware of in my patient population, there are certainly more failures in this particular group than there are in other forms of CSF leak. There are more failures over time and more revision procedures over time. I tend to hold acetazolamide or other management of the intracranial hypertension until they've developed either a recurrence or a second leak. And then... To me, they have now uh, proven themselves <laughs> worthy of the acetazolamide, you know, or, or at least consideration of that over the longer term. And so I would still estimate, and again, this is, you, you were, 
you know, brave enough to publish your results here. I've not published my results in this particular group, but my sense is that somewhere around 70% of these patients just need a repair of the one leak they have and they don't need any further management. Um, I, I mean, I like to believe that's, that's lifelong. I have no way of proving that, but is your experience, what I've described, is your experience with these spontaneous leaks different from my experience? Um, probably not uh, appreciably. Uh, I think you're right. I think you know a good number of these people heal on their own, but I've certainly had uh, a number uh, of heal patients. on their own, meaning heal on their own with surgery or, or don't, and without or don't, a don't, don't, don't require right. don't re- don't recur on their own. Exactly, I misspoke. Okay. I'm sorry. The, okay. um, yeah, so you repair them and they do fine. Um, mm-hmm. But I've also had a number of patients where you repair them and I've not necessarily addressed underlying issues, and they either recur from the same spot, you know, months later, so it wasn't yeah. an initial surgical failure, or or they they um, pop up a new spot, uh, yeah. contralaterally or some other area of the sinuses. And, you know, and I think at that point your options are, as you said, you know, consider some other pressure diversion option, whether it's a shunt or, or cetazolamide or, or, you know, further evaluation of some of these other other things, and 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 I guess I've changed my practice based on the end of the few um, to try to address those issues because I don't I don't want those failures, um, and um, and so to me acetazolamide, you know, other than some electrolyte abnormalities, which are usually you know there's a shift in, in kind of their chloride and uh, levels for for a small bit, um, it, it was represented a really low level of risk to me compared to some of these other more permanent uh, measures. And so that just became my belt and suspenders approach. Um, mm. And I have and I have one woman who I had actually since one of the first surgeries when I, you know, started my job here at UVA and did quite well uh, for four or five years. And, I'd had, and she had been on Diamox because of some elevated pressure type symptoms and she came off of it and developed a new leak. Uh, and then we put her on the Diamox, uh, again, cetazolamide, and that leak itself resolved, uh, on its own or with it, with the assistance of that medication to not require surgical repair, and then she remains on it. And to me, that's even a, a better reason to keep her on it because, you know, we, she demonstrated the ability to form a new lesion, uh, without any significant uh, CSF management. So yeah, yeah. There seems like there's a couple of risks at play here: the risk of undertreatment of these things, and then the risk of overtreatment of these right. things, and uh, you, you, the risk of simply treating them with a medical therapy without surgically closing the leak site. Uh, there's a risk of perhaps undertreating uh, the the actual fistula and leaving them with a risk of meningitis over the longer term. And then, on the other hand, if we treat them all with acetazolamide or treat them with diversions and whatnot with one leak or one leak repair, uh, perhaps a lot of those patients don't necessarily require that management and we're exposing them to certain risks over the longer term. I mean, it's definitely an area we need to codify. I think it would be... I think it would be really interesting if there were a way to prove that not only were your patients not leaking any longer, but that 
there was no longer a communication or a fistula there between the sinuses and the intracranial cavity. But I don't think there's really a good study. I don't think that an intrathecal contrast study would really help because you and I both know that I don't find those studies very helpful for patients with no. CSF leak anyway. Right. Um, and so I doubt that that that's really going to be helpful. And yet that and the, and then again that exposes the patient to a risk of an invasive procedure to check to see if there is a leak when you suspect there is not one. Right. Yeah. And, I, and you're right. I think I think the imaging studies are going to be limited, um, whether it's CT or MR cisternogram. You know, we're, we're, if they're not leaking, we don't actually expect to see anything. In a, in a, even just a high-res CT, we don't necessarily expect the bone to reconstitute, even with a standard surgical repair. So, you know, what changes do we necessarily look for uh, in that circumstance? And I'm, I, I'm not sure you're right. It, it, and we, we wrestle with the same issue of who to treat with these types of adjunctive therapies and who not, and do you subject everyone to a lumbar puncture with its level of risks? And mm. and and when do you puncture them? Is it immediately post-op? Is it several weeks post-op? You know, are there right. you know other less invasive measures of intracranial pressure that don't uh, have some level of variability? And there's some non-invasive measures, but they're you know they can you know the inter and intra-rate reliability aren't so great. So it's yeah. uh, it's it's somewhat of a conundrum. And and I stumbled into this. You know, process and uh, but thought it was, you know, worth the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Any other points that you would you think are important for the for the reader and the listener to take away from your manuscript and from this podcast? Yeah, well, I think I think the biggest issue that we we noticed in terms of who this is probably not a very good idea for are yeah. definitely the morbidly obese and okay. specifically our study we identified. 39.15 BMI as our kind of, you know, crossover point between when it goes from likely to be of benefit to unlikely. And so you could stick to that number or, you know, you know, 40 of a BMI is a number that's used in a lot of instances for when surgical failures like sleep apnea surgery is less likely to be successful. And so the take-home message may be that, you know, this is not an, an option for patients with a BMI of 39 or 40 or greater, and those people probably should just go straight to repair and then management of the um, exacerbating comorbid factors postoperatively. Okay, that sounds good. Well, to summarize, I think I think the reason that I struggle with this, or, or I, I shouldn't say it that way, the reason why you and I uh, have come into this with different perspectives is our what we think goes on at the site of the leak when the intracranial pressure is changed. And I have, in my mind, envisioned this fistula that was even a epithelialized fistula that was not going to heal unless there was some reason for it to heal, like a surgical procedure to help it to heal. And in, from your perspective, you approach this problem with a sense that, well, if we change the forces and we prevent the fluid from going through, the body will make the adjustments necessary to close that area. And so in that situation, the body takes care of the, the longer-term risk of meningitis by closing on their own. Is that a fair way to encapsulate this? 
I think that that sounds pretty fair. Okay. Well, the the listeners and the readers will have to come into this with their own perspective and listen to our conversation. And I think there's going to be a lot more work done on this uh, in the future, Spencer. I certainly thank you for for you know first of all examining your own clinical experience, finding something that you think is beneficial to your patients, and not just starting to do it and and uh, uh, without any, you know, questioning about it, but to actually publish your results in a peer-reviewed fashion so that the rest of us can review those results and have these kind of open discussions and debate. That's that's greatly appreciated. Well, I, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to talk about it, and, and you're right, I'm, I'm going into it very uh, eyes wide open, and, and we're working on prospective trials and, and, and other measures to, to minimize the risk that you've, uh, you've raised. Well, thank you, Spencer. Uh, happy holidays to you, and look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of Dr. Smith and his guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.